Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 93rd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world uh, from the past week in financial markets and financial planning. So happy Thursday, Matt. Happy Thursday, Mark. Um, got a kind of a jam-packed schedule here today for you, so we're going to just dive right into it here. So as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track and these numbers are as of the market close on April 14th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 2.6% for the month and up 9.81% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrials Average is up 1.74% for the month and up 10.2% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 4.61% for the month and up 7.52% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is uh, virtually flat, down 0.2% for the month and up 13.9% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 1.15% for the month and up 6.85% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently sitting at 0.04%. The two-year Treasury sitting at 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.64%. So I think the biggest thing from the past week, Matt, uh, which people are starting to notice, is that large-cap tech has started to outperform again to start Q2. Um, so I guess you know right, right ahead of earnings season here, so we'll see if this is just a short-term rotation back into tech or if this is going to be uh, longer-lasting. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been pretty dramatic too relative over the past couple of weeks and I think it just goes to show you that, you know, I think the market is respecting the quality of earnings, the balance sheets, the earnings growth, and I think a lot of those individuals trying to catch falling knives in Q1 and the reopening stocks are starting to have some second thoughts. Yeah, yeah, and, and a brief teaser to that, we're going to talk about uh, that towards uh, the latter half of this yes. podcast when we have Nick on because he worked in the energy sector for a long time. So um, so excited to hear what Nick's thoughts are on the energy sector in general here coming up. Um, should be no surprise to anybody, but again, the Federal Reserve pledged last Thursday to keep interest rates low as the economy continues to recover. Um, This was an interesting one, Matt. U.S. consumer credit surged by the most since last 2017. Total credit jumped $27.6 billion from the prior month, the largest gain since November of 2017. That's significant. And on an annualized basis, uh, you know, this borrowing uh, rose 7.9% in February. So again, when we say, you know, consumer credit, just people borrowing money, essentially taking advantage of these low interest rates. And, you know, I guess that makes sense, right? With all this money flowing throughout the economy and people getting stimulus checks and still with increased unemployment benefits, um, you know, people are borrowing money to do other things with it. Money's cheap right now. Um, The average American consumer paid down debt over the past 12 months as he or she has not been able to travel much, right? So the savings rate's been double digit for some time. So um, this is a welcome statistic 
that I think uh, just previews what you and I feel is going to happen this summer, which is a robust U.S. consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the kind of the last thing before we move on is another positive thing, I think, for the U.S. economy is that new business applications uh, or filings have surged recently, according to Bespoke Investment Group on April 8th. Uh, with so many applications, there's hope that obviously the post-COVID economy will see many new small businesses replace the ones that were lost in the pandemic, um, kind of to help spur that robust hiring and economic activity um, that hopefully quickly recovers towards uh, you know levels that we saw pre-COVID. Absolutely. I, um, the listeners, if you see this chart that we are looking at that shows this, I want to let you know that Mark properly utilized the word surge. <laughs> um, in comparison to the financial news media, which abuses it. Yeah, this, I mean, if you're looking at this chart, it's virtually, you know, vertical, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I guess the other thing that I've been reading over the past few days, Matt, that hasn't really circulated the major media outlets is that there's been a large, again, I'm going to use it, surge in new COVID cases in India. There really has been, Mark. Big, and, big. And no one's talking about that. Not just surging cases, but surges in deaths, too. There really has been. So, and it's definitely a concern. It's something that we need to monitor for emerging markets, per se. Um, but I, I have I saw that piece of news as well. And what's going to be interesting, from my opinion, Mark, is how the U.S. is going to deal with, let's just say, excess vaccine doses over the summer and how do you properly prioritize where those are sent to without making other countries upset at you yeah it's going to be hard it's going to be really hard so not saying and again i don't believe that that statistic should change anyone's game plan when it comes to investing but just be it aware of noteworthy. it because you could see it you know you know ripple and get to the media outlets and then you know there could be consequences from that you know maybe it's a delayed effect of the herd immunity that it just has to kind of make its way through the system and i'm not defending it i'm not downplaying it i'm just kind of making an observation right right okay so moving on to tweets articles and research from the week i just have one that kind of caught my eye that's a little longer so this was a blog post by uh, nick majuli um, from ritholz wealth management we talked about nick's stuff several times before yep this one was on march 23rd um titled started from the bottom because you know march 23rd of 2020 was the bottom that the was the market, bottom right so pretty punny there nick um so he starts by saying it's been one year since the market bottom during the coronavirus crash on march 23rd 2020 if you had bought the s p 500 on march 23rd you would now be up 76 percent excluding dividends that's kind of nuts if you think about it Isn't it was that? so depressed back then yeah. It was and, just the market was just so, so depressed. Yeah. Um, I mean, just think about that. And, you know, and since then, and since this blog was written just, you know, a few weeks ago, it's closer to like that 80% number now that the S&P's up since the bottom. So now remember, listeners, no one wanted to buy then. No. It felt extremely uncomfortable. Yep. And I'm going to get into that. Oh, okay. So <laughs> you always do a good job of sniffing it out. <laughs> Since uh, since 1915, he says, there have only been two periods that had had higher returns over the prior year, July 1933 and March of 1934. Both of these periods occurred during the recovery from the Great Depression. True. And I think it's important to put this in perspective because, you know, um, look at mar what markets have done after prior, prior crashes. They go up. 
And yes. again, I'm in no way saying it's easy to call when crashes are over, but if you're in it for the long term, does it does it really matter? There are opportunities. Right. Exactly. So God, you're good. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be, be, <laughs> this next line. Therefore, without a doubt, March twenty-third, twenty twenty was a generational buying opportunity. In fact, it may have been a lifetime buying opportunity. These kinds of crashes and their subsequent recoveries continue to be as rare as they've been throughout history. Then we may not see a higher one year return in the US stock market for the rest of our lives. It's a possibility. It's very possible. Um he continues to talk about, you know, how it's easy to feel like an investment genius right now, right? So obviously due to the strong concerns or excuse me, returns over the prior years, it feels easy to feel like an investment genius right now. With such high returns, almost everyone can feel like they saw it coming. But I promise you that this is mostly hindsight bias. And I think this is the issue for most people, Matt, because like you said, no one in March 2020 was optimistic that the market would recover or at least recover as quick as it did. I mean, go back to our podcast tapes at that time. We were the voice of reason. Yeah. And it was a very unpopular view. Yeah, because it's just hard when you have blinders on when you're in such a, you know, depressed state with everything going on for people to see a way out of it. Absolutely. Right? But that's how it is for every every economic hardship, right? It is. But the but the amazing part is the memory of investors very is short. short. Very it's short. Very short. But I just wanted to point out and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to you know, put the dagger in people that sold during March of 2020. But, you know, if you did, I can tell you one thing. And I think that people did significant damage to the growth of their portfolios if they sold in March of 2020. Yeah, because I I bet you if I showed you a statistic from March 23rd of last year, 10 years from now, and we took out the first 12 month period and we looked at the returns dramatic difference. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's something that people are never going to be able to get back. Can't, you know, so that's why it's, you know, it's not prudent to, to make these decisions on a whim or make emotional decisions if it's not a part of your plan. That's right. You know? um, so this is, this is kind of a interesting poll that Nick did. So back on March 20th of 2020, he did a poll asking Twitter, you know, how long it would take for the S&P to recover and make new all-time highs. Oh, I wish right? I was a part of this. So the the answers people could select from were less than one year, one to two years, two to three years, or greater than three years. Can you guess which had the most? It votes? had to be greater than three years. Had to be. Uh, it was close. That was second. So the, the, the number one popular pick was one to two years. Number two popular pick was greater than three years and then followed by two to three years and less than one year. Obviously, it was the least favorite. And look what happened. Yeah. It was less than one year. Yeah. So, again, it goes back to the fact that it's so hard to to predict what's going to happen. You just can't do it. I mean, this is just a, a simple poll that just that just says that. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of reminds me of, of some of the advice general advice that you were providing at the time, which was invest for your specific situation, invest for your specific time horizon. Most people did not need their entire portfolio three months later. Correct. Correct. And then, you know, fast forward six months after the bottom on March 23rd, and we were hitting all time highs again. We were. We were. No one was calling a V-shaped recovery. No. 
I won't spike the football. (laughs) Regardless of what you believe, he says, the past 12 months have illustrated that predicting the future is always much harder than it seems. And, and, you know, again, this should be ingrained in people's minds that it's pretty much impossible to predict what's going to happen. You know, COVID was in nobody's playbook for 2021. I was talking to Nick about this yesterday. So, again, that's why I don't give weight to all these predictions that are out there. And for all of the um, Buffett followers out there, Nick uh, outlines a quote that Buffett once said, in the 20th century, the United States endured two world wars and other traumatic and expensive military conflicts, the depression, a dozen or so recessions and financial panics, oil shocks, a flu epidemic and the resignation of a disgraced president. Yet the Dow rose from 66 to 11,497. True. So. I think just the name of the game is that if you're in it for the long term, expect and accept that these things are going to continue to happen um, and learn to live with it. You know, it's just one of those things that, you know, you know, we talked about it so many times on here, but the detriment that you're going to do to your portfolio growth and, you know, second to that, your retirement is going to be huge if you make these emotional based decisions during tough times. Absolutely. You know, I just I just encourage people to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because this is how it's always been and how I think it's always going to continue to go. Only thing I can add is just remember information moves quickly. Trades move quickly. People sell first, ask questions later, and you need to take the other side of the coin and look at all those as opportunities. Mm hmm. Yeah, because I think I think in situations like this, people get so like one sided that they're like, I need to sell to protect my assets. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But what if you sell and what if the market continues higher by 30 percent? Then what? Yeah. What's your what, what is that? Plan? The harder decision is when you get back in. Right. So I think you just have to look at it from both sides. You can't be one sided with buying or selling, you know, so. Nope, I agree. Just want to throw that out there. That's all I had. I have about three items, Mark, for the listeners this week. The first is an update on growth versus value. Now, you previewed this uh, to listeners, um, kind of the market news at the beginning of the podcast segment. I would like to highlight that as of one month ago, growth, also maybe known as momentum names, were were underperforming value at a rate not seen since 2002. We're seeing that trend reverse over the past month. Now, I'm going to take a second and I would like to explain the general difference between growth stocks and value stocks. Okay. So a growth stock, generally speaking, is a company that is growing their earnings year over year by at least double digits. Mm -hmm. Or greater than the average stock, right? Greater than the average stock, right? In comparison, a value name would be characteristic of a company that is growing their earnings, historically, by single digits, right? A lot less growth in the company. They tend to be names that pay out their excess earnings in the form of a dividend, as an example, where a lot of growth names will retain their excess earnings to fund future growth of the company, okay? So with that being said, you know, you've seen a dramatic um, uh, shift over about a month ago, because in the first quarter, as a reminder to listeners, a lot of these value names were, were, were spiking. And since value has underperformed for quite some time, 
there were a lot of uh, pounding of the table that value was going to rain from that point going forward. And you're starting to see, you know, a change there. And the comment that I want to make in my uh, personal opinion as to why is because we're embarking on earnings season and people are about to see the hard numbers of what these value stocks are going to report in earnings, earnings growth. And they're going to see what a lot of these growth dames end up reporting here for the first quarter. And I think that's why you're seeing the shift. Mm -hmm. Mark? Yeah, I, but I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, so many different uh, investors and so many different people that manage growth funds or value funds have different definitions of what a growth fund and what a value fund is. That's a very accurate statement. So like you were just mentioning that you wanted to highlight that as of one month ago, growth in parentheses or momentum names were underperforming value at a rate not seen since 2002. So the growth names right now or over the past couple of years are momentum names because they've been performing better, right? So momentum, when people talk about momentum, it's the best performing stocks over the past three, six, 12 month period, whatever time period that, you know, you go by. Yep. Um, but that's not to say that value could also be momentum if over the next two years value outperforms because and then all these funds have to rebalance their momentum funds into value names because those are the names with the momentum, right? Good point. So I, th I think you can really get into the weeds and, and look at these different funds and what they define as growth or value, what they define as momentum, because all this can get misconstrued where you have some growth names that are showing high momentum and some value names that are showing high momentum. So you can get a mix of the two. Good point. That's why it's like, the whole growth with value conversation, it's like, I just want to, I want to own companies that are going up. I want to own companies that, you know, that are growing earnings, growing revenues. Keep it simple. Well, I remember after the tech bubble of 00 to 02, what became really popular for managers to buy was GARP, growth at a reasonable price. And that ranged from 02 to 07 because growth managers had to rebrand themselves because value was doing so well in the early 2000s, because a lot of these managers are very niche in their investment style, guess what? They weren't garnering any new asset flows. So they had to rebrand it to be like, we're growth, but at a reasonable price. And what's a, what's a reasonable price? There it is, exactly. It, it, it just, it proves your point even more. Amazon had a PE ratio of 685 in the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I looked at, <laughs> there was a statistic on Amazon recently showing at what its PE was back in 2014, and it showed its PE annually leading up to now, and it kind of had like these um, uh, think bubbles, it's too expensive, this PE's never going to catch up, and I'm not advocating for or against Amazon, but it is a good example that some of these names grow into that. Right. Right. And I think that's something that's not that's not really talked about when you're it's having not. this discussion. So. It's not. So I want to give an update on growth and value. You are seeing growth, uh, quote unquote, comeback versus value. And I will be very interested to see how that occurs over the next month as we get through earnings season. Um, another piece of data that I would like to share with listeners is an update on housing. I think you were about to find this very interesting, Mark. 
So this is um, a tweet that I that caught my eye from Ben Carlson on April 8th. It was titled why this is not another housing bubble. So, you know, that Mark, the title alone made clickbait for me. So I got to oh, yeah. give Ben some credit for that. that. That's a good one. That's, That's gonna a good get a one. lot of reads. I clicked. <laughs> so with that being said, in the blog post, Ben shows a chart of the volume of mortgage originations, and it illustrates the credit score ranges going back to 2003. Now, Mark, this chart clearly shows um, how many low credit borrowers there were leading up to the great financial crisis of 07 and 08. This time around, an overwhelming majority of originations are by individuals with credit scores above, are you ready? 760. 760. That's huge. That is a key piece of information left out of the debate in regards to the future of housing. And when I say majority, I'm talking in excess of 70%. Mark, your thoughts. Yeah, I, you know, this is, this is good. Um, you know, we always like to look at silver linings, and obviously 2020 was a hard year. But this, I think, is one of the silver linings. It forced people to save. It forced people to pay off debts. And in turn, their credit scores increased. So now you have people that are in, not everyone, but there's a lot of people that are in better financial situations now um, because they can borrow at lower rates because they have a higher credit score and they can afford to do it. Very different from, you know, the mid 2000s, right? Yeah. When, I mean, the, 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 one of the, the, the points I thought about when I saw the article was that category of credit score is, in my opinion, very unlikely to walk away from the home in comparison to lenders, I'm sorry, borrowers back in 07 and 08. Yeah, I think that that's, that's very accurate. Yeah. Very accurate. So, I, you know, I, I tend to agree with Ben here that, you know. That's a dramatic piece of information that's not being discussed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. All right, Mark, I got one more for you, and then uh, we're going to turn it over to Nick. Um, I have one area of concern in its market sentiment. So another area of the market where we're seeing some unwelcome strength, in my opinion, is sentiment. And you may have a different stance on this. So last Thursday, we saw the release of bullish sentiment from the American Association of Individual Investors, AAII, and it showed that bullish sentiment surged by the most since November to 56.9%. The last time this reading was higher was back in early 2018. Now, Mark, I'm surprised to see that this data, however, it confirmed with the recent drop in overall trading volumes recently. With the potential lack of, quote, sellers in the market, uh, taking liquidity out could cause further upside in equity prices, in my opinion. Yeah. So and, you know, when typically when the, you know, this reading, um, this poll of individual investors gets super, super bullish. You're, it's sometimes a contrarian indicator that we're that's, due that, for that's a my point. In essence, it says to me, traver, traders have overcommitted themselves from dry capital, from 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 cash or areas that they could put money to work. And in essence, it's going to hurt future demand of, of of shares. Is my concern? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's important to note that, yeah, this could lead to a bigger sell off or it could just lead to sideways choppy action, which know? I think that, that that's that's definitely likely. But, 
the other point that contradicts this to a certain extent is how much cash is in the financial system right now. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that helps me not get overly concerned about this is looking at M2 money supply, which is a statistic provided by the Federal Reserve about the amount of money in checking savings, money markets, and the whole financial system. And it is still high. It is extremely high. Mm -hmm. So that tells me there is dry powder on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I saw a stat earlier this week, too, that, you know, 85 per, 85 or 90%, I, I don't know what the exact number was, of the companies in the S&P 500 are over their 200-day moving averages. That's not bearish. No, that's not. So un until we start to get a breakdown in that number, then, you know, this, this, I like I like seeing this stuff because I like, you know, putting all of these things together to make a an accurate assumption of what's going on. Um, but we're not seeing confirming breakdowns in equity prices yet, I don't think. Nope. So not at all. Um, yeah. So that's going to be that's going to be interesting. Um, so I'm going to deviate a little bit, Matt. I'm just going to do the financial planning topic really quick before Let's we do it. go to Nick, just because I want to make sure we just focus on Nick. So Nick joined us um, as our director is finance. Um, he used to work for IHS market in the energy sector. So I just want Nick to kind of explain what he did and what he's going to be doing for us and his experience with the energy sector, because he's got he's got more experience with energy or deep dives with energy than me and you do. So absolutely. Um, but again, just wanted to uh, jump in really quick to the financial planning topic of the week. Um, again, it's from um, an article by Peter Lazaroff from PlanCorp. Um, so just to reiterate, he wrote a series of blog posts that highlight the most important financial decisions to make depending on your age. So last week we talked about investing in your 30s, and this week we're going to talk about investing in your 40s. Okay. Next week we'll be in your 50s, and then we have um, – Peter eventually over the next couple of months coming on the podcast to talk about some of this stuff. So we'll hear directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Love that. Yeah. Um, so he starts this one off, Matt, by saying, by the time you're in your 40s, you've probably established some financial goals, invested in your workplace, retirement accounts, and set aside money for a rainy day. It's also more likely that you've gotten married, bought a home, and had a few kids. Next comes the question of whether you've done everything you can for retirement. Short answer is probably not. The good news, you're moving into your peak earning years, which means you can start making up for any lost investment time. Um, the first thing that he talks about is 529 college savings plans. Okay, So contributions to a 529 plan grow tax-deferred, and withdrawals are tax-free when used for qualified education costs. So many states uh, also, Matt, even offer state income tax deductions on contributions to a state-sponsored plan. Correct. Um, so I'm personally a fan of parents using 529 plans to save for their kids' college expenses. I think the key here, though, is starting early. So this is the type of account that, in my opinion, um, you know, it needs to get more conservative the closer your child gets to going to college because... You don't want to have this money in 100% stock the year your child starts college because you know for sure that you need this money, right? Yes, this is an accurate use of a lifestyle fund. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I thought you were gonna you're gonna go against me. No, which I, was, no, I was looking forward to. I was looking forward to that. But oh no, no. This is this. I'm not done. I'm not done though. So maybe you still will. Okay. So you know. So going back to your point, there is a there's a finite life on college, right? It's either, it's either two or four years. Yep. Okay. And 
I don't think it's wise to be extremely aggressive when your child is in, you know, their, you know, senior year of college because you know you're going to need that and you don't know when the next market correction is coming. So what happens what happens to the college plan if you have two or three years saved up for your kid's college and that gets cut in half by 50%? Then what? Exactly. Right. But again, the key is starting early. So when they're really, really young, be aggressive, right? And keep contributing monthly to that. But then, you know, once you get to the point that you're going to need that money, you need to get more conservative. And that's very different than saving from retirement because retirement can last 30 or 35 years, right? Bingo. Bingo. And you still and, and you don't it, need all the money up front the day you retire. Yeah, it's not like retirement's only four years and there's a finite life on retirement. So that is that's a completely different conversation that I want to make very, very clear. Okay. I'm with you. Um the next thing is he talks about um, you know, optimize well, actually before we, we move on from that, he does touch on what we always talk about that, you know, people need to prioritize their own retirement before saving for kids' colleges. One hundred percent in agreement. Right? Okay. Um, and a good way to do that is focusing on your retirement. And then when your kids are younger for birthdays, holidays, stuff, have, you know, family members contribute to the 529 plan, so on and so forth, because anyone can contribute to your kids 529 plan. I want to make that clear, too. So that's an option. Yep. And I always want to throw this out there. I would say statistically, the people I see working in excess of the age 70 that are forced to do it, not out of their desire to do it, but financially required. I would say, in my opinion, of the top three reasons, it's because they paid cash for their kid's college. Right, right. Some people can afford to do it, and that's fine, but there's other people that can't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He talks about optimizing your taxes and, you know, you know, way beyond doing all the available deductions that you can get on your tax return. um, You know, people failing to optimize their investment contributions is a big one, I think. So, um it gets a little in the weeds, Matt, but, you know, people in in this day and age, Roth IRAs have been a, a huge talking point and whether it's smarter to do a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. So can you just give your two cents on, you know, who should be utilizing traditional IRAs or traditional 401ks and who should be utilizing Roth IRAs or Roth 401ks generally? Yeah. So generally speaking, my opinion is this. If you have at least 10 years or more from retirement, I want that individual to focus on the Roth side of the equation, because depending upon their tax rate, their rate of return, that deviates what their break-even point is to get the tax advantage up front. Because just as a reminder to listeners, when they do a traditional IRA contribution, they get the tax benefit at the point of contribution. The, the uh, contribution grows tax-deferred, but then in retirement, it comes out taxable as ordinary income. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Roth side, it's an after-tax contribution, no benefit up front, grows tax deferred, but comes out tax free. The other thing that could make sense is for individuals in a higher tax bracket. So what makes sense is let's say that you are in a very high tax bracket, and you're in your prime income earning years, let's say in your 40s, it could make sense for you to load up your traditional with the thought process. Well, when I retire early at 55, I'm going to be focusing on Roth conversions 
after I stop working and start converting this money over at a lower tax rate. So that's where I think it makes sense. But my general rule of thumb, 10 years or more of runway, you should be focusing completely on Roth, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, <clears throat> it's one of those things that there's no general right or wrong answer for this because everyone's situation is different. It's exactly right. right. Because if you think that, you know, you're going to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, um, you know, why tax that money now at a higher tax rate? But then, you know, an unforeseen event can happen where you lose your job and you're making much more or much less going forward for the next 10 years. So it's like, how do you, you can't account for that. No, or you don't know what taxation rates are going to be a decade from now. Yeah. And you know, if, and if you're in that situation where you're uncertain about what, where your income's going to be or what your tax rate is going to be, I would say do a little bit of both. I don't think there's any problem that's a with great, that. That's a, it's a great point. You know, you know, split it 50 50 as an example, you know, you hedge your bet both ways. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, you know, if you are in your peak earning years, you know, which is, you know, late 40s, early 50s, probably, um, then just understand that, you know, if you do make pre-tax 401k or IRA contributions, you can deduct that off of your income. So it's going to lower your taxable income for that year if you want the benefit now. Yep. So if you want the tax benefit now, make sure you're doing everything you can to max out your contributions to your pre-tax 401k and your traditional IRA. Yes, but sir. like you said, if that's not important to you and you have greater than 10 years to retirement, then yeah, the Roth probably makes sense. Yep. So um, the next thing he talks about uh, and the last thing that I want to talk about is tackling uh, your debt. So he puts out some statistics that... Generation X, which he labels as people from 40 to 55, carry the most consumer debt of any generation. The average credit card debt balance is 8,100 on top of uh, 240,000 in average mortgage debt, 21,000 in auto loan debt, and 39,000 in student loan debt. So I know there's two ways to, two major ways to go about tackling debt, right? You have like, when we're talking about Dave, Dave Ramsey, you have the, the snowball debt method and the, the avalanche debt tackling method where, you know, the snowball method is where, you know, you pay the minimums on all of your debts and, you know, direct any additional payments to the smallest debt to get that paid off first because it makes you roll that cash flow the next one. Yeah. And, it, and because it makes you feel good, bless you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> um, it, because it makes you feel good and it gives you momentum. And I, under, I understand that from a, an emotional standpoint. The other way is tackle your highest interest bearing debt first. Yes. Because over the long run, that's going to cost you the most money. And that's going to provide the most savings for you. So in my... That's my preference, by the way. That's my preference, too. Because, okay. Because when I, when I look at this stuff, I look at it from just a pure numbers standpoint. Yeah. Um, and, you know, financially, you know, if you use the the snowball method and pay off your your lowest interest bearing debt first, then, you know, you are going to it's going to cost you more money over the long term. Agreed. Right. But, you know, the snowball makes people feel better. It makes people feel better. So, I mean, either one is fine, but my preference is, is obviously the av avalanche method um, just because it makes the most financial sense to me in my head. Agreed. So but to each their own. Yes. So um, that's all from the financial planning topic of the week. We have one more next week uh, in this series of investing in your 50s for those that are closer to retirement. 
Um, so we are going to transition now and have our newest director of finance, Nick, talk about his experience and his prior job within the energy sector. All right, so we are back here with our newest director of finance, Nick Whitaker. Um, Nick spent um, some time at IHS Market, and he worked in the energy sector. So I thought it'd be interesting for listeners just to hear, um, you know, Nick's background since you know he was in a very uh, niche sector of the energy sector in terms of what he was doing. So, uh, Nick, we're super excited to to have you at the firm with your expertise in this. And why don't you just start by telling people, you know, what you did for IHS and, and the company before that and kind of your background in, in the energy sector. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here. I'll start with that. Um, to give you some background, I spent close to seven years in what a lot of people call the stock surveillance industry. It's a lot of data analytics and following the market. I spent a few years with a smaller company called Iprio, and that company was later bought by IHS Market, but I worked in the same department, so to speak, for, for those close to seven years. In a nutshell, what we did was we helped publicly traded companies, stocks, understand who their shareholders are and whether or not their shareholders are buying and selling the stock. So uh, I spent a couple years in REITs, and then I transferred to the energy sector. And when, when we're doing that, it's, it's really institutional consulting. So when we're doing that, it is very much your, your head is in that space, right? So when I was with REITs, I'm working exclusively, exclusively with REIT clients, anywhere from seven clients to 12 clients, just dependent on the, on the load and how many analysts you're managing, et cetera. But I've spent the past few years in, in energy, obviously with, with the head down, um, in that sector. And it's, it's a certainly like you like you mentioned. It's a niche sector, right? Stock surveillance. It's much smaller than you might think it is. A couple billion, the whole industry is, but it's very unique and interesting in that I got to see the behind the scenes of Wall Street. That's that's our job, right? We're helping these publicly traded stocks understand what's going on when the stock goes up ten percent. We have the data, we have the analytics to look at that and explain, hey, these are the shareholders that are moving moving that stock. So. Mm -hmm. It's a very cool way to see the market, and not many people see it that way because we get to see all of that, all of the data. Right, and you know, I might, and we've talked about this before, Nick, but I might be simple-minded in that. You know, did you ever have calls with people where you're simply just like, there's, you know, if they're like, why is my stock down ten percent? And you're like, well, quite frankly, there's just more sellers than buyers today? Or, you know, how do those conversations go? Yeah, that that's one of the toughest parts of that job is that, you know, you are you do have that C-suite audience. Most of the time we're working with investor relations officers. But if you're working with a smaller company, maybe a small cap or a mid cap, I did have CFOs that I would and CEOs that I would go directly back and forth with. And that's uh, that's the tough part, right? You have a CEO reaching out to you and saying, "Hey, why is the stock down four percent today, or, or or however much?" And you have to have an answer for that. To answer your question directly, there are times where I get that call and I say, "You know, it's I don't have a lot for you right now, but I'll, I'll kind of come back." And and there's times where there's not a lot of great answers, but most of the time we can provide something, right? When we're when we're in that role, um, where we can tell them, you know. There's not a lot of your big shareholders moving on that day. Maybe it's more quant driven or maybe it's more retail driven. We can kind of give that 
um, or we could kind of give that that perspective, but it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. The other thing, uh, Nick, is I know the energy sector um, stock prices have been, you know, very volatile over the last couple of years. So I know that, you know, in your prior stint, your stress level had to be relatively high the last couple of years. Any comments you want to make to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can say my stress levels weren't as, as high as my clients, right? Because I was more institutional consulting. So my, my feet weren't particularly in the market because I'm more technically an insider. But yeah, conversations with clients over the past few years uh, were difficult, to say the least. My, my take on the energy sector, having been again, very head down, exclusive in that space, is that there's obviously a lot of volatility. And now that I'm on the investor side of things, I can say say with confidence, and this is the same thoughts uh, and opinions I've had over the past couple of years, is it's not a space that I'm particularly bullish on. I think there's so much volatility and there's so much that can be unpredictable with the oil markets. And I'll, I'll summarize my views on this. I mean, we could get way deep in the weeds, but I'm going to try to do the, the eagle eye view, so to speak. And my views on the energy sector are you have to look at the history. And I think a great way to do that is to look at the S&P, uh, the energy as a percentage of the S&P over the past 10 years. And if you look at that, you could probably Google it and find a chart or find a, um, uh, a table and, and see those percentages. If you look at that, you'll see... The, the energy as a percentage of the S&P fall drastically over that period, all the way down into 2%. And there's a good reason for that. In a nutshell, the energy took on too much capital from Wall Street. They took on capital at higher interest rates. It's a very capital-intensive business, understandably. They're pulling oil out of the ground. Yeah, and just to clarify for people, when Nick says taking on capital, borrowing money at debt. high interest rates, right? Right, yeah. debt. Yeah. Too much debt. And it got to a point, particularly when I was in the, the, the past couple years consulting, a lot of what was going on in the market is investors, these big institutional investors on Wall Street, were talking to, to issuers and they're saying, you know, we want cash, we want capital discipline, and we want capital efficiency. And so many of these energy providers just couldn't do that. You know, your, your EMPs, particularly your, your small and mid-cap names, their businesses weren't set up at... To, to be efficient and, and profitable at 40 low $50 oil. They just weren't making money. They needed $55 barrel oil to, to turn a profit. And that's really what's been going on in the industry the past couple of years. So if you look at that, again, that energy as a percentage of S&P, you look at the, the performance of the sector over the past years, there's been a lot of underperformance. These names all the way up to the big, integrated names all the way down to your smaller driller names have underperformed the benchmark indices. And so there's a lot of undervalued names in that space. And that's what I think has happened in the past six months is, as you guys alluded to earlier in the podcast, is you have some profit taking out of tech and you've got some people rotating some capital into these value, because at this point, energy is a, is a value trade. When oil was so low in the, in the 40s and 50s over the past couple of years, Wall Street, the big guys on, on the street don't want to put all that capital into the space. The stocks get undervalued. Um, and we've seen a little bit of that turn. And so energy has, has taken off in the, in the first quarter, and, or I should say through the first quarter. But uh, from an investment point of view, I, I'm still 
not very bullish on the space. I think there's a, a, a ton of volatility. I think predicting oil is, is very difficult. So now oil, yes, is up. It's a back where, you know, investors and all the energy specialists think it should belong. But all it takes is one macroeconomic headline and that that flips. And I, I watched that multiple times in my three three or so years in energy where it just takes that one headline and then things things change on, on a on a dime. Right, so. exactly. And it's it, to the pos- positive and negative side, right? So you have, you know, an air stri- an airstrike in the Middle East and that affects the price of, of oil significantly. Um, exactly. You have, you know, OPEC uh, decide on production cuts possibly. Yep. Um, that could cause, you know, the price of oil to go higher. But then, you know, just as early as last year, we saw, you know, futures contracts for oil go negative. Yeah, And no exactly. one ever in their right minds thought that that was possible of ever happening. Yeah, that was the first time it happened, to my, to my knowledge. Um, yeah, it's just, that's, from an investment point of view, you know, that is why, you know, I, I'm just not very very excited about the energy space is just watching all of that volatility, knowing what's going on with, with the capital efficiencies. And, and there's a reason that the percentage fell the way it did, the, both the performance and the percentage of energy um, within the S&P. There, there's, there's good reason for that. There's still a lot of, of uncertainty in the energy markets, just beyond the commodity price alone, right? Just how how will it transition in the future? What's going to go on with, with ESG? It's still very new there and renewable energy. And there's still a lot of question marks for me. And that's outside of the commodity risk, which is the biggest reason, right, that I would tend to shy away from it personally. Nick, I got two kind of questions, um, and I'll list them both out, and you can choose how you want to attack them. Okay. You know, the first is um, in regards to these uh, boom and bust phases in my career in the industry going back a little bit over 20 years. You know, I've witnessed uh, over $130 a barrel oil. I have, you know, witnessed periods where oil has stayed in the high 20s for a year uh, close to it. And, you know, these cycles, it always creates, um, you know, excess inventory at high prices the energy companies can get money real easily via debt issuance Mm -hmm. they produce too much you know liquidity you know drains into the system prices come down and then it just reverts oil goes down they can't pay their bills they go out of business drilling goes down the rig count etc bankruptcies (laughs) rinse and repeat any sort of anything you want to add to that your verbiage do you see these cycles maybe coming quicker in the future, slower? What's your thought there? So that's a, a great question. I, I'm i not sure that I'm educated enough. I, I think you might even be more educated in, uh, in, in answering that question, to be honest, because I only spent the three years in, in the sector. What I will say is that I think a lot of the future is going to have the renewables in that question, right? Yes. The cycle will change. The cycle in the past, you know, you have your different forms of energy. You you have your Brent, you have your WTI, you have your nat gas, you have your coal. But now we have all this renewable energy coming into space. So the, the cycle might look different in the next 20 years. And that's where it gets very tricky. I would right? agree with that. I mean, I didn't think of it from that avenue, but I would agree, Nick. And that's where a lot of the conversation has been with with issuers and with the clients I've had in the, in the, the past couple of years is, 
you know, what does that look like? How quickly is it going to come? All of these companies are very concerned about ESG and for good reason. You know, coal in the U.S. is, is phasing out and it's going to phase into nat gas. So, you know, nat gas being the, the cleaner for listeners out there, nat gas is cleaner than, than oil and obviously cleaner than coal. So the future will be more nat gas and, and what does renewables look like? You know, there will get to be a point and, and no one knows when this inflection point will be. But there will be a point where renewable energy will be as efficient as as pulling oil out of the ground. Now, that could be 20, it could be 40, who knows? Well, here's a good question. Um, before I ask my second, explain in 60 seconds, if you can, what ESG means. I know okay. Mark knows, but let's, for the listeners. Environmental, social, and government and governance. That's what ESG is. You might also hear SRI, social responsible investing. Um, in a nutshell, what it is, is it's it's looking at companies that are contributing to, to good in, in the globe is the best way to just summarize that in, yeah. in a few seconds. Um, That's good. So here's my follow-up. My follow-up is What's not being talked about, in my opinion, is there's not enough lithium to sub to support all these batteries. Yeah. And from my understanding is there's not enough reserves or known reserves of lithium that they can get out of the ground to where we could be 100% renewable energy in cars. And in some of the estimates I've read in research, the most we could probably get to is 50% of cars being on batteries. And so... I just want to see that no one's really talking about this, Nick, that everyone thinks that oil is going to go away in, in petrol cars. And until they come up with another way to store the energy in the car, what's your response to that? What's your raw thoughts? My raw thoughts, and I'll take a, a view that uh, a economist told me years ago, but my my thought is that innovation always tends to shock us. So we don't know what the next innovative product is going to be. Love that. We don't know if we'll find another source. You know, a hundred years ago, would would they have thought about some of the energy efficiency and the te the technology innovations that we have? Probably not. It would be mind blowing to someone three three hundred years ago. So you don't know what's around the corner. To answer your question. And it's a fantastic point, and people are talking about it, and there's good reason that they're talking about it. I'm not, by, for all the listeners out, out there, by no means am I saying that oil and gas is going to go away anytime soon. Oh. It is here to stay, yes. right? But that is still a conversation that's being had by these issuers because we are in that beginning stage of, again, ESG being very important, renewables being in, in the front line of the conversations, not that there's you know, so much options and for, for the big money to, to invest in, but that it's something that we know is going to happen. So, you know, that, that's how I would answer your question is, you know, in a, from an innovation perspective, we don't know what's around the corner. So yeah, yeah exactly. they could come up with a more efficient way to, to, to burn oil, or, you know, it might switch more to nat gas. Um, you know, they could find a more efficient way to, to do, car batteries who knows yeah yeah and i just i just think you know just to add to it and maybe this is you know a simple-minded comment but it just seems to me i mean as of the current state a lot of these energy companies are significantly significantly their success is dependent on the price of oil 
Yes. And that's one thing that makes me uncomfortable as an investor is that, you know, I don't want to have an investment that is solely tied to one single thing, like the price of a commodity, right? Yes. Um, so that I just think that poses more risk, and that's fine if people want to invest in it, but I just think that people need to be aware that in today's energy that we live today, and like we said, it could look completely different in 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, but we're significantly dependent on the price of oil right now, and that you know has some concern in my opinion. 100%. I, I could not agree more with that. And that's something that, you know, I had clients, multiple clients that, you know, we would be on the phone and we both know that, you know, they're breaking even on oil at, at $50 or $55 a barrel. And I'm in a 100% agreement with you on, on the commodity risk. Some people can, can tolerate that if you're extremely high risk and you know energy like the back of your hand and you feel comfortable trying to predict the price of oil. I am not comfortable predicting the price of oil and Matt as you alluded to earlier there there are there are massive swings and in, in these cycles and the cycles will continue but it's very difficult to predict a random walk or a headline that comes out from from OPEC or, or something off the whim or you know like you said someone bombs a tanker mm-hmm. in, in the Middle East and then the supply goes up or mm-hmm. or, or whatever it's you can't predict that stuff There's so many bodies it's just an area it's just too risky it's very risky yeah yeah so just briefly just to wrap up nick can you just tell you know people you know kind of what you're doing for us right now what you're working on what you're excited about to be on the investor side of things yeah absolutely i can say i'm extremely excited to be on this side of of the fence so to speak you know i appreciate and and have learned a ton from being the and the behind the scenes but excited to be here on on the investment side of things for listeners out there, my primary roles and responsibilities will be helping Mark trade trade the book and doing a lot of trading behind the scenes and then doing research on the side um, and, and helping with that. So, you know, I'm excited to do it all, if I'm being 100% honest, um, but really just excited to, to get my head down and, and start doing some research and, uh, and learning more, so... Nice. Yeah. Well, we're excited to have you on with all, all your knowledge and everything. So thanks for uh, joining us today on the podcast. I'm sure it'll be really interesting for people to hear your thoughts on on the energy sector in general, since that's been a hot topic. Um, anything else, Matt, before we wrap up for the week? No, I, I, we're going to have Nick back on on a regular basis for various different topics, listeners. So you're going to hear from him uh, once in a while. And uh, beyond that, we're going to be in the thick of earnings season over the next uh, two to three weeks. So you're going to see a lot of earnings reports. So you'll see a lot of potential swings in stocks and know it's probably earnings related. Yep. So we'll leave it there for the week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the 93rd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. And we'll see you all next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.